1: program, everybody. I am so glad you're here. I'm especially glad you're here because we are, wow, we're going to address a topic today that when I say this sentence, you're going to start crying in, in a good way. When will I be good enough? Oh, my God. I spend most of my life trying to help other people heal from this giant umbrella question that so many of us feel wounded or broken or something's going wrong and, and in this instance today uh, it is not any different except you're going to be surprised by uh, our author's portal into this subject so stay tuned for that I'm not going to give that away right now but everybody will be able to relate to this topic in some way or know someone who does so know that but let's do what we do at the top of the program which my commitment to you is to help you either support, reinforce, or help you cultivate a practice, a daily practice, taking all of the information that you know in your thinking mind and actually helping us all embody it, right, moving in the world, um, having access to that really great awareness, but having it change us and shape us. and and allowing us to reap the benefits of that kind of knowing. So that embodied knowing is what we're looking for here. If you're joining us for the first time, you are intrigued, probably sitting down going, let's go, let's do this. If you are joining us again and again, I can't tell you how many remarks we've gotten over the last decade. People love this inquiry, and that is just turning our attention inwards. And the way we do it is finding our breath. Gosh, can I just, for one moment, pause and find my breath? Right? That is the simplest way I've found. It's my invitation to you. And it doesn't mean what's happening in there is all necessarily all that soothing. Turning our attention to ourselves can be activating. But if you just stay for a moment and deepen that breath, Whatever's happening, allowing your breath to bring you back down and into yourself, you'll find your nervous system starts to settle. Listening to your sounds, feeling the air move through your nostrils or your mouth. There it is, the rise and fall of your belly or your chest. And there's the gift. Here I am. in and out what a gift it is and on that note the second part of our practice while we're breathing in and out is finding a portal of gratitude you could be grateful just for the breath i used to have a panic disorder as many of you know we get personal here on (laughs) marion
2: lives
1: nothing sacred and taking a breath used to be um, something that for years was really frightening to do because sometimes it would trigger a panic attack So my breath is something I'm grateful for, that I have an even breath. Some people out there are struggling with illness, know someone who maybe can't breathe. I mean, breath is a wonderful place to find gratitude around. doesn't matter what it is. Find your portal. Here's my question for you. Who helped make it possible for you to do what you're doing right now? That's a wonderful way into the conversation of gratitude. It's not always easy to get there. We have lots we're contending with. could be our personal past that's coming up, the shadows of our past. You might be in therapy. You could be dealing with elderly parents. You might be sick, know someone who's sick, just trying to make ends meet wherever you find yourself. See if you can find some way. For example, what did I have for breakfast, lunch, or dinner today? Right? Who helped make that food? Who helped me get that food in my belly? pausing there, the clothes that you're wearing, who helped make your clothes? could be yourself. Just spending a moment going down the list of folks who helped make it possible for you to do what you're doing. We're going to go down our list real quick. In the meantime, at the global level, the OneWorldChildrensFund.org, if you're online, is our honorary sponsor here at Marian Live, uh, Uniting People to Improve the Lives of Children Affected by Poverty. At the national level, we have the National Action Organization committed to changing the way our culture values each other. They make this program possible. And by the way, 100% of the proceeds from that organization goes to programming just like this. Uh, and at the local level here in Northern California, we have been sponsored by the Open Secret Bookstore in San Rafael, California for 11 years this April. So we're very excited um, to be in an affiliation with the Open Secret Bookstore. They are a place that no matter where you are, what you're doing, you walk in and you might just magically find the book you're looking for, like our guest today, Barbara Jaffe's book, sitting there waiting for you. And on that note, we are going to turn our attention to our guest and our author today, Because I have to tell you, when I even heard the title of this book, I almost started jumping up and down for joy. I knew several people who this topic affected. Um, This is based on, her book is called When Will I Be Good Enough? Uh, It's based on the replacement child journey to healing. um, And there is um, a syndrome called the replacement child syndrome and um, emerging information about this very subject. But it's not yet mainstream, and Barbara, our guest today, is hoping to make it so. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. And uh, In the meantime, you can find this book online or wherever fine books are sold. I know you like to multitask those of you who are online looking for it already. Our guest today, Barbara Jaffe, um, uh, is a doctor and an award-winning English professor um, at El Camino College in California and is a fellow in UCLA's Department of Education. She's offered countless workshops to students to help them find their writers' voices through writing nonfiction. Her college has honored her by naming her outstanding Woman of the Year and Distinguished Teacher of the Year. Quite on both of them are quite honored. As well, <laughs> I'm looking at her right now on Skype. We have the privilege of being together. Um and She herself um, was a replacement child, and she's going to talk to us about what that means exactly. But her question is, were you born to replace a child who passed away? So no matter how many times replacement children are told that they are special on some level, they can feel they never seem to live up to the model their parents wanted. They always fall short, never being enough. Replacement child Barbara Jaffe shares her hard-won knowledge to help us identify our lost self-esteem self-confidence and self-worth, and to fix the broken pieces within ourselves. That's what her book addresses. And she's joining us right now. We're so glad you're here, Barbara. Thanks for being on Marion Live.
2: Thank you. I'm honored to be here, Marian.
1: Wow. I was saying to you this morning, Barbara, what a book. Really activating. It is so deeply personal and incredibly helpful. Just naming the um, replacement child. Uh, issue in our culture, maybe throughout the world, Um, not maybe, obviously, but in our Western culture there's a particular way that that shows up. Can we start there, Barbara, by sort of explaining what it means to be a replacement child?
2: Absolutely. So in the literal sense, it is a child born after the death of a sibling. The family had parents that already decided that they wanted a certain amount of children, their family was complete, and then sadly, suddenly, this happens, and they make a decision to have another child to replace that child I and mean, we know that children can't replace other children um, but still there was a subliminal message that was given to me and not so subliminally when my mother would say you know if Jeffrey had lived you wouldn't have been born so and some level I thought what did I do um, poor Jeffrey he was two when he passed away and um, sadly my mother never recovered And not that anyone can totally recover from the loss of a child, but in those days, especially in the 1950s, there weren't therapy groups uh, for loss, for parents to get together, and especially in my family of origin, talking to a therapist was very much considered taboo. Um, As she liked to mention to me sarcastically, her therapy was uh, her family doctor paid a visit to her when she was lying Mm. in bed, grief-stricken after um, Jeffrey died. And he literally slapped her across the face and said, get over it, move on, you have a child, have another. And then four months later she got pregnant with me. But she never healthily grieved. And as a result, because there was a lack of communication in talking about those issues, I just kind of swallowed those feelings as I grew.
1: Thank you for that. Um, One of the things that I really appreciated in reading your book was The way that you take us through the journey of how you started to identify yourself uh, without language for many years. You know, just what's wrong with me? When will I be enough? That kind of aching, painful, uh, shadowy presence. Uh, And it showed up in very different ways. And I'd like for you uh, during this program to take us through some of the ways uh, that showed up in your life. that were um, ambiguous but so excruciatingly painful until you finally identified that that's what was going on, that you were uh, this replacement child.
2: Yes, and um, I never really thought of myself as a replacement child, but I knew that there were pieces of myself that just didn't seem to fit. I was a perfectionist. I tried to be the best little girl possible, which evolved into a complete people pleaser. And Of course, the person I wanted to please most was my mother. I was definitely enough in my father's eyes. And While I know both of my parents loved me very much, my mother's love was often very conditional. If I was a good little girl, if I did the things she wanted me to do, wear what she wanted me to wear, eat or not eat what she wanted me to eat, then things were okay, but I never quite knew when the other shoe was going to drop, and so I grew up anxious. I grew up, as I said, a perfectionist, and it affected my uh, my self-esteem in that I felt I couldn't make decisions without my mother. So those were some of the early on indications that I would look at other people, and I just felt, gosh, it's so hard for me to be me, but I couldn't put my language, as you said, to anything, and I couldn't quite understand until i got older and especially when i left for college when i left home that's when i began to see um, what was really missing within myself
1: one of the things that i also wanted you to speak to is that your father stepped in uh... and in a the, the, the cultural psychology in here in the western culture maybe across the world i haven't done the research here but the mother usually gets the burden of um, of. <laughs> <laughs> everything when it comes to the, the psyche of the child, right? They they get blamed for everything. Yet your father stepped in and held you and nurtured you and reflected in a very maternal way most of the things or many of the things that were your sort of mom's responsibility. Can you talk about this? Because I thought this was extraordinary.
2: Yes, early on, well, even before, I remember, but the stories were, were such that... Um, He would get up in the middle of the night to feed me as a new baby. Um, And as I got older, I called him in the middle of the night if I wasn't feeling well. He would tuck me in at night in bed, uh, never my mother. I would go to her and kiss her. She was already in bed, and then I would go back. And again, as a child growing up, I felt that that was normal. But um, as my father was there as much as he could be, and he was much more unconditional in his love and playful and we spent a lot of time together but he was he worked like six days a week but he was also very protective of me as a girl and one thing I didn't write about but I remember that I was actually very excited to get my first bra and my mother of course went with me to get that but I was you know chubby and my folds and it was just very uncomfortable very and very tight around my middle for the first time and I do remember being out to dinner once at a party and my dad unzipping my dress and unsnapping my bra and said, Take that off. You don't need it. And, it, and I was ashamed and demoralized, but at the same time I knew that he didn't want me to grow up and I was still his little girl. Those were, but I, I see that, too, that you know, he just wanted me to be who I was.
1: Yeah, this, this dynamic, this, this, the archetypes of the mother and the father and the child in this culture during this time when you were growing up were so clear cut, right? Part of when I was reading your book, I could really see those stringent lines and that how you, the beauty of your ability to find your way out of that Story, finding your compassion, and finding your own journey, which is what's so gorgeous about this book, by the way, if you're just joining us. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Barbara Jaffe. She's written a book called When Will I Be Good Enough? A Replacement Child's Journey to Healing. Um, the way that you come to these awarenesses, as I was saying, is, are beautiful, heroic on some level, and reflective of, challenges that even if you weren't a replacement child, I suspect many people struggle with. Can you speak to that?
2: Absolutely. Um, even without, as you said, being a replacement child, I think if we were in families where one sibling got more attention than the, than the other, which often can happen depending on health issues or um, acting out or difficulties in personality, um, uh, blended families, adopted families, uh, a lot of issues can arise for me they were in areas of self-esteem self-worth and self-confidence um, I don't necessarily think people on the outside could know what was going on in the inside but I often felt like a salmon swimming upstream just trying to get through it all and so those were the areas that manifested itself and before um, around puberty a little before puberty is when I developed my eating issue and I know that that had a lot to do with my with control I felt so out of control in my life about the only thing I felt I could control was what I decided to eat or not eat. And that became an ongoing battle with my mother, who, on one hand, wanted me to be thin, on the other hand, wanted me to be healthy. Mm
1: -hmm. We're going to talk about that some more uh, a little bit later in the program. Um, Before we do, because there are some big topics that you hit on. um, And again, so many people can relate. Whether you've been a replacement child or not, these dynamics can show up in, in significant and different ways. Let's back up a little bit, Barbara. <clears throat> excuse me, and talk about your parents' uh, differing experience of losing your brother Jeffrey at two years old. If you're just joining us, Barbara lost uh, Barbara's mother and father lost a child at two years old, and then. Barbara was the quote-unquote replacement child. but let's talk about your parents different differing responses to
2: that loss. My mom never wanted to talk about his loss every once in a while um, he would say she would say something that um, as I mentioned before um, it was terrible to go through Jeffrey's loss and I didn't want to have any other children. Um, but I did because it was important for your brother and her parents, told her, along with the doctor, to have another child. So she didn't want to talk about him, but there were pictures of him around the house, so I knew he existed. And my father wanted to talk about him, so any question that I had, he would ask, I mean, he would answer, and he even showed us old movies that he had, the last set of movies was um, The Last Christmas That um, Jeffrey Was Alive, with my older brother, who was uh, um, almost seven when I was born. My brother, my oldest brother, does not have any memory of Jeffrey, which is very interesting. So we didn't talk a lot about Jeffrey, but when I would ask questions, my father was very comfortable answering. And it wasn't until my mother was almost right before she died. She died at 85, um, nine years ago, eight years ago. She, She said, when I die, no one is going to remember when Jeffrey was born and when Jeffrey died. And I said, well, I will be... Happy to, but I need to know the dates. I mean, to be this late in life, not to have that information, was very sad for me. So that is exactly how I grew up, not being able to talk about him and about the loss.
1: Mm -hmm. Which was so present and shaped you in so many ways.
2: So present and shaped me. And my mother, as I wrote about, was very depressed and did the best she could. There were days when it was glorious and she was happy and went through life just, just happily. And then there were other days that there was a dark cloud over her head and she spent many times in bed and with the shades drawn and was um, very detached mm-hmm. always made sure that I was okay. Um, my grandmother came over a lot um, when I was growing up and helped out. But it was always very, I always felt like I had to tiptoe mm-hmm. and just you know, walk on eggshells.
1: Do you, over the years, have you thought about um, had your mother been encouraged to grieve? I mean, it just wasn't done during that time. I know that. I'm, I'm asking an impossible question, but I'm imagining that you thought of it. God, what if our culture said grieve? Grieve until you're done grieving. Do it out loud. You know, wear black, wail and moan, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me about thoughts you've had like that. And, I had and where... those ex-
2: yes, I'm sorry. I had those exact thoughts. I thought, gosh, because I spent my entire life looking inward and finding answers, and that required me to have therapy, that required me to write, that required me to do uh, retreats, to do my own internal uh, questions and answers. And so I would come to my mother and I I would say, maybe you should talk about things. And and she just, there was a wall that I could not penetrate. She said, you might need to talk about things, but I am strong and I don't need to, which I knew enough to know that that was not the reason why people go into therapy um, because they're weak. It's because they are strong and it takes a lot of courage to examine ourselves inwardly. I also got the feeling that, If she began to go down that internal road, that it would frighten her so much that she might not be able to come out of it. So it wasn't my um, position to do that.
1: Got it. All right. Well, I appreciate that insight. And it's very vulnerable and just a beautiful um, testimony of uh, sometimes when we are carrying the legacy of grief or any other emotion from our parents. More when we return right here on Marianne Live. When will I be good enough? Let's find out when we return more with Dr. Barbara Jaffe right here with Marianne Camarato on Marianne Live. Back in just a minute.
3: I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break
4: up again? You said he's perfect. Well... I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event.
3: Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love.
4: Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship.
3: Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now.
4: We've ordered
3: No More Love Life Drama for Us.
4: Hi,
1: everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host, Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50%
4: end in divorce yet?
1: Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Live and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out com.
2: Collect 10 nights and you'll get one night free. And there's no cancellation charges, no change fees. For the best deals, even last-minute deals, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Hotels.com.
4: Music, information, and friends. HealthyLife.net.
1: Hey everybody welcome back Um, are you good enough <laughs> when will you feel good enough finally well our um our guest today dr barbara jaffe is with us she's written a book titled when will i be good enough a replacement child's journey to healing and this is not just about replacement children i'm feeling it uh... and seeing these patterns across the board but this is her journey about being a replacement child and the different issues that she faced that she's hoping will resonate for other folks out there feeling uh, similarly and maybe even peripherally relating because these issues that you are touching on, Barbara, are, are really big ones that a lot of us share. So there must have been a lot of consternation and curiosity when you finally started to name what was happening. Right. Oh, my gosh, I see a pattern here. Hoorah, but also like, hmm,
2: right? A lot of research.
1: <laughs> a
2: lot of internal research, that's true. Yeah,
1: yeah. So as we move forward, so we, we've talked a little bit about your parents' orientation, uh, their experience of grief and loss to losing your brother Jeffrey and how this started to shape you. There you were, a small child. Wondering what the heck is going on here. I just can't seem to be whatever you want me to be mom. Dad did his best to step in and, uh, give you, your basic needs were met. You talk about this through the book. You really had food and shelter and caring enough. There was sort of that, the, the good enough mothering was happening. Yet this growing feeling of I'm just not good enough really started to shape you. In particular, you mentioned before the break, has it related to your body image uh, and how that affected to your, your self-esteem let's go down that rabbit hole because this is a really big piece that you talk about throughout the book
2: it is a big piece and it's still one today that I struggle with certainly I I am better but, um, so I was chubby growing up and I loved to eat and food was a very important part of our family and um, unfortunately my metabolism was very functional so what I didn't burn off I stored so my mother at an early age I was probably around 10 or 11 she told me to begin to watch it those were the words watch it which I became very good at reading between the lines which meant I was getting fat and I understand that she was probably trying to protect me from what she considered to be a lifetime of difficulties with being overweight and as a girl and getting boyfriends and all of those traditional kinds of roles and Ways of looking at girls. Um, my brother wasn't under the same scrutiny. He pretty much ate whatever he wanted, and it, he wasn't chubby, really. But he didn't have to worry. So food became an issue for me. And I guess the more, at a young age, when someone's told not to eat something, the more they want to. Um, until I began to see that it was bothering my mother so much, and and then I started to watch it to the point where I did lose a few pounds, and people remarked positively and then I thought, well gosh, I could keep this up. And so I did and went down that hole of anorexia. and my period stopped and I really feint- I fainted several times when I was out and about in the world. and um, my mother brought me to her gynecologist. Of course I think in those days eating issues were not as prevalent in terms of the knowledge and what we know and support groups and research. And virtually the doctor said to me that I am hurting my mother. I am destroying her, (laughs) rather than, say, talk about some of the issues that brought me to having those eating issues. So I felt really badly that I was hurting my mother. I was always conflicted, on one hand, wanting to do for myself and not wanting to hurt my mother, So my mother and father, um, both of them, were very upset about my not eating, and they literally every night, which I wrote about, um, gave me a plate of Oreo cookies and um, had me eat them with a glass of milk and then weigh me on the scale, and that became almost my nightly routine. Mm. I did gain weight and eventually went the other way and and yo-yoed back and forth for a very long time until I went to college and then realized that if I could starve myself all day, then I could pretty much eat what I wanted at night. Again, all of these things were very unhealthy. And I have come to a detente with myself to, to know that I have these issues, and it's not on the front burner anymore. It's on the back burner. But in times of high stress, times of sadness, um, my eating issues will flare up. Mm. And I do the best I can one day at a time. Mm
1: that 's beautiful, thank you for sharing. I know this is a topic that touches so many people um, who may or may not be replacement children and On that note, would you be so kind as to talk about how the dynamic of being a replacement child might ripple out and how other people might have a constellation that 's maybe not exactly being a replacement child but how that the other issues could uh, manifest in an eating disorder. Um, are you following me? Yes,
2: yes, yes. Um, absolutely. That, um, when I wrote my book initially, of course, it was for my own inward journey and recovery, but I, do, I wanted to have it published because I did feel that it would help others. And my eating issue was one of those issues that has to do not just with food but really of control. When I felt so out of control in my life, often that happens, whether someone eats too little or eats too much or becomes bulimic. and So I knew that that even though it's a very sensitive issue, um, it's very, very important that I discuss it and allow readers to understand Mm -hmm. that maybe they have some of the same kinds of issues, whether it's overeating or whether it's any kind of addictive kind of behavior. I also write about the self-esteem issues that I had, that so much of my self-esteem was tied into the size of my dress and how much I weighed on my driver's license, that even today when I am considered to be thin, when I look in the mirror, I don't see that at all. I do have that body dysmorphia that is described, and I have to just act as if I act as if I am normal in terms of my weight and that um, I can kind of pass when people um, look at me and they see perhaps a normal person on the outside. And this was brought home to me when I was clothes shopping probably about six or seven years ago when I went to look for a size. The salesperson said, oh, no, you're this size. And I said, there's no way possible. And she was right, but that was never the number that I had in my mind. And Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, I just have to – continually work on that so that was my self-esteem in in one area and my self worth was also tied into the areas of um, the dinners that I made my uh, what kind of mother I was I would like to touch more on the idea of motherhood because that was definitely an issue that has affected me as a Mm -hmm. child growing up to replace another or the the areas of never feeling good enough, mm-hmm. not feeling a good enough wife, not feeling a good enough daughter, um, a, a parent.
1: Yeah. So essentially what I'm hearing you say is being a replacement child, you you could also say this it is, a, uh, with all due respect, a placeholder for when will I be good enough. Like really fill in the blank in your own life. Your parents, you may not have been a replacement child, but there could be a a bazillion dynamics going on in your childhood. And as a child, you're standing there thinking, if I could just be blank, then you'd love me more. I'd be good enough, right? Is that what I'm hearing?
2: You're so right. And we Hmm. can say, if I could just be blank, I'd be good enough. We could do that our entire life. But I knew that's not the way I wanted to live my life. I knew that I could find the serenity and peace. If I just examined these pieces. Yeah.
1: And you also, before we move on from the eating disorder, you've made a really important point that there it's so complex, the dynamic between a child and their parents sort of sets that initial groundwork for how you are in relationship with the self. Actually some would say your relationship with the mother or the main caretaker really sets in place your relationship with the self. Right? So, um, then there's the culture. And then there's the media within the culture in our capitalistic society. So you do the math, people. Trying to find your way out of that vortex is an ongoing siege. Uh, Dr. Barbara Jaffe is joining us here on Marion Live. When we get back after the break, we're going to talk more about motherhood. We're going to unpack this when we return. Don't touch that dial. Back in just a minute.
3: I don't want to date anymore.
4: What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event.
3: Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love.
4: Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship.
3: Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No More more Love Life life Drama drama for for us.
4: us. Shh, over here. Here's a secret for a virus-free computer. He said...
0: Did you know that in seven minutes you might save $522 in car insurance? Well, this makes sense, since 21st Century Insurance's company's website has been rated number one in responsiveness by Keynote. Serving customers since 1958, 21st Century Insurance has a 24-7 online policy and claim service. You can get a quote fast and easy, so get your quote by visiting HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click right on the 21st Century Insurance banner more exhilarating talk healthylife.net
1: welcome back everybody thanks for joining us today you've tuned in to Marianne live you're listening to my interview with author dr. Barbara Jaffe she's written a book called when will I be good enough gosh how many times have you said that to yourself or whispered it? Well, we're saying it out loud here on Marianne Live, and in the context of a replacement child's journey to healing, but what Dr. Jaffe has uh, really explained and widened the parameters. I almost know no one who hasn't, on some level, been affected by this one um, pervasive meme. You know, when will I be good enough? So we're unpacking that today. We're at the layer where we're talking about the mother. You wanted to talk about this mother archetype, and and we're going to go in and talk about some other issues that are related. But we've moved out of the food story a little bit and going into the dynamic of the mother. Where do do we want to start here?
2: Well, I think that um, I always wanted children, absolutely, and um, when we... Had our first child, I actually thought to myself, well, I played with dolls for a very long time, so I should have no problem. And I, I loved him, of course, but I absolutely was not prepared to have this child. And it was um, my first son was colicky, and I did not ho- know how to comfort him, and I absolutely thought it was because of me that he was so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I just Had Right from the time I was in the hospital, I was so afraid of making a mistake. And I had a C-section, so in those days I was in the hospital for about a week, and I literally never unwrapped him from his blanket. I was so fearful. I mean, he could have not had legs and arms. I never would have known the difference because I was so afraid of um touching him. And, and <laughs> I mean, now of course it's, it's ridiculous. It's babies are in <laughs> yeah, first baby, you don't know
1: anything. <laughs> and I
2: truly didn't. And I had had a very difficult labor, and as I said, been a C-section. And my mother was so upset about the length of the delivery and the fact that I had to have a C-section, that she did not come and visit me in the hospital. She was so upset. And again, it became about her. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have anyone telling me, you'll be fine. This is what all mothers go through. In fact, I didn't have that at all. And I had to navigate that that road of motherhood that definitely brought up so many of the issues that I had thought that I had dealt with um, in, my early, in my late teens and early 20s. Motherhood just reared its head, and, um, but I loved my children. I had two others, so I have three sons, and what I did as a mother uh, made a conscious effort to make sure that they never had to worry about me, that they did not have to tiptoe around me, they did not have to worry about my feelings, because I had none. I was really, I wanted to keep the focus on them and whatever they wanted. And so for me, that was a legacy of growing up with low self-esteem, low self-confidence, and low self-worth. Whether I was a replacement child or not, I think many of us can relate to those Mm -hmm. issues. And I wanted to make sure that my children were fine without worrying about their mother because I wanted to do the opposite of the way in which I grew up. Consequently, as a mother now um, of adult children and even a grandmother, I realized that that was not the best way to do it, and I did myself a great disservice as well as them. Um, I think it's hard for them to see their, their mother as a three-dimensional person, mm. and on one side it's positive. They feel they don't have to worry about me because I'm fine. On the other side, I'm at the point where I'd like to be worried about a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, So I can't have it both ways. I know I created this. And um, for your listeners out there that are younger and newer parents, I would say, well, make sure that you let your kids know if you're having a bad day, it's okay that mommy isn't feeling well or that we, you know, these. I think it's very important to be human. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know what? You made me think about, uh, uh, I can't remember the psychologist's name, Kohut, K-O-H-U-T, uh, he did, uh, this whole piece about the narcissistic culture, that transition, that period of time, uh, in the Western culture where we were talking during the break that mother, you, you women had two, essentially two roles, mother or the whore. If you took on the mother role, you were probably pretty resentful because all your, your only job was to be a mother. of giving, doing, right? So you had this undercurrent of, narcissism which is you made everything about me made your children feel guilty because it's the only way you were going to get any attention right and this feels like the backlash of that right the children didn't really get what they needed because the mother wasn't getting what she needed and this is handed down and look at this third generation here you are trying to interrupt this very long pattern this cultural piece that i'm so fascinated by uh... that your work uh, addresses um, it's implicit but not explicit but I'm fascinated ar- around this could you ta- speak to this just a little bit
2: yes um, in terms of my I was raised in a matriarchal family and that my grandmother took care of my mother because she knew that she was very fragile my grandmother took care of me my mother took care of me but in a different kind of way and when I grew up as I said I was very convinced I would be a wonderful mother and I think I am but again all of these issues that I had thought that would not be related at all just came out in a flurry
1: right and the piece that's missing that your book really leaves us with drumroll is me (laughs) the female saying like you said you were conflicted because you couldn't do for yourself because it caused your mother pain because she couldn't give herself what she needed, so she needed to get it from you but covertly, right? So yeah. there you were trying to give yourself what you needed, which is a cultural problem. Women feel they are being selfish, something's wrong. So often we make ourselves sick, have, um, have eating disorders, all of these distortions so we can finally give ourselves the food, the nourishment that we're dying for, you know, in and, and the, and the metaphor of food in your case. I need to be loved and comforted, and my love affair is with food, for Christ's sakes, you know, sorry for yes. crying out loud, right?
2: That's right, and, and you bring up the point about being selfish. When I would do things for myself, um, I felt that it was being selfish. And yeah. at times, my mother would say, well, what about the kids? You, you can't think of yourself. You have to think of them. And reinforce the idea of being selfish, yeah. which was kind of... She definitely took care of herself yeah. in many ways.
1: Yes. The covert affair goes on when we come back more with Dr. Barbara Jaffe right here on Marianne Live. Don't touch that dial. You will be good enough. We'll see to it. We'll be right back right after these messages.
3: date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect.
4: Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event.
3: Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love.
4: Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship.
3: Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now.
4: We've ordered No More Love Life Drama for us.
0: MarianneLive.com is where you can go to keep up to date with what and where relationship expert, author, and radio host Marianne Camarado is appearing next. Besides Marianne's three radio shows weekdays on HealthyLife.net, you can find out details about upcoming or ongoing seminars and workshops. How about information for ordering copies of books or DVDs? That's also available at MarianneLive.com. Find out about Core Certification Certificate of Responsible Relationships www.maryannelive.com, core certification, learning tools to attract, build, and sustain great relationships. Also sign up for Marianne's newsletter to be informed about upcoming events and possible workshops or speaking engagements in the Northern California area, www.maryannelive.com. net, the positive radio network.
1: All right, everybody. We're so glad you're back. We're coming to the top of the hour. Uh, we're with Do- Dr. Barbara Jaffe today talking about her new book, When When Will I Be Good Enough? This is a question that plagues so many of us. We've talked about the replacement child's journey to healing through Dr. Jaffe's story, and how, though, this is a widespread concern for so many of us that affects us. And we're um, going through uh, your book, your, your journey, Barbara, piecing together how this affected you very specifically through an eating disorder, through your own mothering, and, and so on and so forth. But this segment, let's, let's talk about how you really made a choice not to take on the blame game all through your life or or the posture of the victim. You really took a turn. Tell us when that happened and how that continues to um, really color uh, the way you move through the world today.
2: Well, my journey has been a slow progress. I don't think there was definitely one aha moment, but it began to change significantly probably, I'd say, about 15 years ago when I realized that if I focused on myself and my needs, it was not being selfish, but it was being self-care. I mean, I didn't have little tiny children, I had adult children so they were able to take care of themselves. I didn't have to worry about their physical needs and I began to see that if I waited for other people to do the things I wanted and I needed for myself, I'd be waiting forever and that I needed to really internally understand and give myself the things that I needed. I have a couple metaphors that i've written one of them is the burnt toast syndrome As growing up and, and mo- a lot of mothers can perhaps relate if they're cooking and there's a piece of burnt toast they'll internalize and say oh i'll take the burnt toast i'll give everybody else the good piece it's very metaphorical for the way i saw myself with everything i would take even deprive myself of the things that i wanted because they it belonged to everybody else and i had always Grown up thinking that that would be selfish, and then I began to say no. That this is taking care of myself, As, and I—that was a huge paradigm change. Mm-hmm. And um, when I also thought that other people that were close to me must have known what was inside my head, so they should mm-hmm. give me what I want. Idea would be, my husband of many decades—he knows what I'm, ex- what I'm thinking. How could he know? I'm the only one. So when we'd have a conversation and he'd say, how are you? And I'd say, fine. But of course that didn't sound like I was very fine. And he'd say, well, what's the matter? Nothing. And then I realized I wanted him to figure it out when I could just say. And once I began to say this is what I need and this is what I wanted, it was transformational. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. This is so powerful. And that really does speak to that shift of the victim archetype, doesn't it? Because really what was going on is the child in you was saying to the mother in you that you were projecting onto the husband, I need you to care about what's going on with me, and you didn't. And you just got tired of that story and started to take control. And this is the beautiful part of healing, this process that you've embraced and you're championing and trying to let the rest of us um, peek into your life and how you've done that. Talk about um, some of the most profound ways i I think one of them was getting your doctorate I, i love that story where you just said i don't care what you say this is what i'm doing like you really found that interior drive that belonged to you it wasn't at anybody or for anybody it was like and and then the father your father actually supported you as well that's a beautiful quick story
2: Yes. um, When I decided to go back and get my doctorate, which was late in life, I um, had no reason in terms of my career that I necessarily needed to have the degree, but it it was everything for me. I just knew I needed to do that.
1: It was a childhood dream of yours.
2: It was. Actually, I wanted to be a medical doctor, but that was pretty much nixed. My mother explained to me how women should not be doctors, et cetera, et cetera. I was not good in math and didn't know that I could have gotten support in that respect but again I say the statue of limitations of blaming our parents runs out when we're 18. (laughs) I I look inward um, for the answers. I I know my mother did the best she could and she loved me. I don't see myself as a victim. But um, I was really on a mission and financially it didn't make sense. There are many reasons why it didn't make sense but it made all the sense in the world to give this gift to me and that's really what it was. And so I studied relentlessly for the years it took me to get my doctorate, and um, I consider it to be my, you know, my final climb. And again, it was a gift I gave to myself to see myself as whole and to see myself that I was enough. Mm-hmm. But not everybody needs to get their doctorate. It's whatever we choose yeah. that belongs to us mm-hmm. absolutely. And my mm-hmm. father very early on said to me, because I came from a family where there there wasn't an advanced education and didn't necessarily sit around the table saying, where are you going to college, but he did say, an education trains your mind and it is something that nobody can take away from you. Mm -hmm. And even though I didn't know what I wanted to study initially when I went to college as an undergrad, I went and just used that as my focus that at least I'm there and the light bulb will go off and I'll know what I need to study.
1: Beautiful. Gorgeous story. Your book is filled with these very inspiring stories. Um, congratulations for finding your way out of that family mythology and into your own right and your own self and inspiring us to do the same. That's When I put the book down, I, I felt like, oh, my, if she can do it, so can I in these areas or that area. I love that about the book. What do you want to leave us with?
2: I would love to leave you with a quote. Um, I love quotes, and I have them throughout my book at the beginning of every chapter, because to me so much a part of our lives are our journeys and finding a way to be whole, be productive, and no matter what we go through, and we all go through things in life, we all go through challenges, to be able to know that we can live a beautiful life regardless. This is by Ursula Le Guin, and she writes, It is good to have an end to journey towards. But it is the journey that matters in the end.
1: Beautiful, hanging on to that. A lot of people are hanging on to that, hanging on to your inspiration, Dr. Jaffe. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your journey today.
2: Thank you for allowing
1: me this time. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. You're welcome back, and I was talking to you during the break about writing another book because we needed to do that on the topic that uh, we were discussing, so we hope you come back and share that work with us or whatever else you have on deck. Thank you so much. For more information, com, A-N-N-J-A-F-F-E is how to spell that, com, and uh, don't Touch that dial. We're going to be right back for our wrap. You can find out who's on deck next week. Back in just a minute. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Live and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com.
4: To be a good father is the most important
0: job in a man's life. But it doesn't have to be hard. Play catch. Go to a park or visit a zoo. Help your child with their homework. Sit down together for dinner. Ask them how their day was. Things get busy, and sometimes we all fall short. But
4: the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services
2: and the Ad Council. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Where can I contain all of my stuff?
1: When will you be good enough? Now is the time. You are good enough. You have every beautiful thing inside of you that already exists. All you need to do is turn your attention towards it and continue to water that garden. Please keep tuning in again and again. We love your support. We are devoted to helping you attract and create healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationships beginning with yourself. Thanks again to our guest today, Dr. Barbara Jaffe, for joining us. Joining us, get a copy of her book. It's available wherever fine books are sold at Amazon.com. And last part of your practice today, too, by the way, is go do something good for somebody else. Uh, and don't let him know you did it. Um, yeah, however that shows up. Uh, get him a copy of his book, buy somebody a Starbucks or a pizza. Or make him a cup of tea or a cupcake. It doesn't matter. Go do it. It'll make you feel awesome. Next week joining us right here on Mary Ann Live. same time, same place, by the way, is uh, let's see Meg Simone and Avery. Uh, Avery and Me is the title of her book, An Intuitive Healer, Skeptical Seeker, and a Life Transformed, right here on Marian Live. See you next time, everybody.